there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1600s, England could not pick a religion. Constant civil war and social unrest had the country bouncing between Puritanism, Catholicism, and Anglicanism like a three-person game of ping-pong. It was a time when Europe as a continent was just beginning to question the importance of religion and politics. It was a landscape ripe for revolutionary ideas to blossom in the Western world. And while many great scholars emerged in the 17th century, perhaps one outshined the rest. His ideas not only laid the foundation for democracy, but they constructed the modern definition of the self— They were so original and so powerful that they influenced the evolution of world politics for hundreds. His name was John Locke. And though his legacy was profound, his beginnings were humble and defined by one of the most tumultuous times in English history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. And today, we'll be looking at the life and legacy of English philosopher John Locke. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. And now, back to the life of John Locke. John Locke was a scholar, philosopher, doctor, and scientist who grew up during the English Civil War and would go on to be involved in the political intrigue surrounding the restoration of Charles II. He fundamentally changed the field of epistemology, the study of thought, as well as helped to inspire the American Revolution with his ideas on government and religious tolerance. He's considered to be a transitional figure in philosophy, bridging the more metaphysical medieval age with the empirical and skeptical age of enlightenment. But before we get started on Locke's life, we need to understand the world that he was born into. Much of Locke's ideas of the world would be forged out of the religious strife that resulted from the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation, generally considered to have been started by Martin Luther in 1517 with the publication of his 95 Theses, was a direct challenge to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, which had politically dominated Europe for centuries and had engaged in many oppressive inquisitions. This would set off a massive wave of Protestantism throughout the continent, causing schisms and 200 years of conflict. Protestants and Catholics competed for power, often violently, on the local, national, and international levels. This included England, where the throne rapidly switched back and forth between Catholic and Protestant rulers, often leading to violent repression. It was during this tumultuous time that John Locke was born on August 29, 1632, in a small town called Rington, located 141 miles west of London. However, John would grow up in the nearby town of Belliton. Locke's father, also named John, was a lawyer and senior clerk to the justices of the peace. Locke Sr. would have a profound impact on the course of his son's life, fostering in him a love of learning and exposing him to history, philosophy, and medicine. His father was incredibly strict with him during his upbringing. We don't really know much about Locke's mother or the impact that she had on him. Locke would later describe his mother as, quote, a very pious woman and affectionate mother, end quote. So her influence must have been positive. Locke was raised in a religious household, as both his parents had been raised Puritan. 
Although Locke would not be strictly Puritan in later life, his upbringing imbued him with a sense of duty, modesty, and anti-Catholicism. He would be a devout Christian until his death. In 1642, when Locke was only 10, the English Civil War broke out. The Puritans, unhappy with the lax religious policies of the Church of England, began to join Parliament to oppose the king. The Church of England, headed by the monarch, was the dominant religious organization of the entire country and gave the government immense control over the religious lives of its citizens. King Charles I also wanted to rule without Parliament. When he decided to levy taxes without their approval, the simmering tensions between the two boiled over and the country plunged into civil war. Locke Sr. joined a cavalry regiment started by his employer, Alexander Popham, to fight against Charles. The English Civil War ended in 1651, with King Charles I being deposed and executed, and England becoming a republic under the tyrannical Oliver Cromwell. Charles' son and heir, also named Charles, went into exile. The war would claim the lives of over 200,000 people, most of whom were civilians. Being exposed to so much violence as the result of religion and royal tyranny shaped the way John Locke viewed the world. But the war also gave Locke some unexpected benefits. Popham became a member of parliament. Feeling indebted to Locke Sr. for serving with him in the war, Popham used his influence to secure Locke Jr. a place at the prestigious Westminster School in London. In 1646, at the age of 14, Locke left his home in the country and made his way to the nation's capital. The English Civil War, which was actually a series of three wars between 1642 and 1651, was experiencing a period of peace at this time. However, the looming shadow of this conflict would follow Locke on his move to London. Westminster was run by a man named Richard Busby, a staunch royalist who was loyal to the monarchy and opposed to Cromwell's regime. His abilities as a headmaster meant that the government overlooked his political leanings, which was highly unusual. Busby's influence caused Locke to lose his unwavering Puritan faith in favor of a more liberal worldview during his time at Westminster. In order to pay for expenses, he would receive money twice a year from his father, ranging from six pounds to 14 pounds. That might not sound like a lot, but a servant's yearly salary at the time could be even less than six pounds. Life at Westminster School was tough, with the students' lives strictly regimented. A typical day included rigorous instruction in classical literature, as well as Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and Arabic. Locke would later be critical of the school's emphasis on rhetoric, the art of persuasive communication. He also did not care for the corporal punishment meted out or the way that schoolboys were rough with each other. He eventually condemned private schooling in favor of private tutoring. His response to his time at Westminster suggests that from an early age, he was naturally sensitive and adverse to conflict. In 1650, the year Locke turned 18, he earned a King's Scholarship, which allowed him to live at the school itself. King's Scholarships were awarded annually through a competitive scholastic exam involving Latin, grammar, and written composition. Two years later, Locke tried for a second scholarship to Christ Church at Oxford. This would require him to compose a speech in Hebrew, Latin, or Greek in order to convince the electors to give him a spot. Even at this age, John realized the importance of playing politics. He asked his father and Alexander Popham, his father's employer, to send letters to the electors and his headmaster to help win their favor. Although his chances seemed good, throughout his life, Locke constantly questioned his abilities, either out of modesty or as a result of his Puritan upbringing. He wrote to his father for advice on what he might do if he didn't get into Oxford. However, we'll never know what advice his father might have given, as in the spring of 1652, Locke was awarded one of the scholarships to Christchurch. The particular scholarship he received was created in order to supply the Church of England with educated clergymen, and the pressure to become a priest would be a big feature of his early years there. After spending some time at home, Locke began the 60-mile journey to Oxford. Now 20, he was excited about the academic opportunity. 
most of the curriculum was taught in Latin, and students were expected to be able to express themselves in the language. The foundation of much of Locke's undergraduate education was logic, philosophy, and rhetoric from Aristotle. He had to give numerous declamations and formal disputations based in Greek and Latin on various subjects. Locke did not enjoy these at all. He thought that they were more about opinions and grandstanding rather than presenting an argument based on truth and reason. Already, Locke was thinking against the grain, slowly morphing his own philosophy. For these reasons, Locke wasn't a hardworking student. That's not to say he performed poorly academically. He was smart enough to coast. However, Locke found himself looking outward from the university for intellectual stimulation. Locke, never one to be shy in pursuing conversation partners, sent letters to several men, mostly former students, in the hopes of starting intellectual correspondences, looking for stimulating and witty conversation, either in person or through letters, would be a feature of Locke's life until his death. While Locke was at Oxford, the world around him became more turbulent. Cromwell's Commonwealth was asserting itself. In June of 1653, the heads of the colleges at Oxford were ordered to purge anyone who wasn't a good Puritan from their ranks. This period of English history was one where your specific faith was incredibly important. As long as the regime in power shared your beliefs, you were safe. But at the drop of a hat, the regime could change and you could go from having job security to worrying for your life. Locke was a deft navigator of this uncertainty. He kept his political and religious leaning close to the chest and therefore was able to focus on his academic pursuits. In the midst of dealing with a tense situation at Oxford, Locke's mother became sick and died in the summer of 1655. Although we have no record of it, it's believed that Locke returned home for the funeral. Locke graduated in February of 1656, after four years of study, eventually returning to Oxford to get his Master of Arts. This meant his curriculum would broaden to include geometry, astronomy, and natural philosophy, what we would call science today. Things were a little less stringent academically. Locke had less supervision, and students in the master's program were encouraged to pursue their own academic interests. For Locke, his interests would start leading him in the field of medicine. However, medicine wasn't called medicine in those days. Medicine, as it related to a field of study, was referred to as physic. But we'll call it medicine to avoid any confusion. John graduated with his M.A. in June of 1658 at the age of 26. During his time as a graduate student, he was required to give various lectures, which made an impression on the community at large. A contemporary at Oxford would remark that he was, quote, looked upon as one of the most learned and ingenious young men in the college, end quote. Locke spent some time after graduation visiting his father in the country and contemplating what to do next which sounds oddly similar to what many postgraduates do today. At this stage, he wasn't at all enamored with rural life. He would write that he was, quote, in the midst of a company of mortals that know nothing but the price of corn and sheep and that can entertain discourse of nothing but fatting of beast and digging of ground, end quote. Some harsh words for someone who would become known for being able to get along with almost anyone, regardless of social class. We can probably chalk that up to youthful impatience. 1658 would also be the year that Oliver Cromwell died, which reignited the lurking political instability in England. Cromwell's son, Richard, became ruler of the country but was unable to wield the power his father had. This caused tension between royalist and republican factions. For Locke, staying at Oxford seemed like a safe haven to avoid the turbulent social climate, especially since there were rumblings of another potential civil war. He expressed his worries about renewed conflict in letters to his father. In the letters, he refrained from committing to any side out of caution, writing, quote, A comment on these times is as dangerous as to you useless, and therefore fit for nothing but the fire, end quote. Locke never wrote down any controversial political thoughts in order to keep himself out of trouble. This shows us a level of muted political savvy, or perhaps an anxious desire for self-preservation. In any case, this would be a lifelong practice. 
he returned to Oxford in 1659 to continue studying medicine. However, the pursuit of medicine could not slow his intellectual curiosity. In his eighth year at Oxford, he also studied science and engaged in philosophy and religion. He was like a modern-day medical doctoral candidate that weekended as a physics professor, read Plato in his free times, and made it to church every Sunday. Impressive time management skills. That same year, Locke read a recently published book called An Essay in Defense of the Good Old Cause, or a discourse concerning the rise and extent and the power of the civil magistrate in reference to spiritual affairs by Henry Stubb. The book argued that it wasn't the place of the government to impose a state of religion on its people. Since there was no one way to interpret the Bible, people should be allowed to worship however they wanted. This was a pretty radical idea at the time, especially when religion and power were synonymous. As we mentioned earlier, Locke had very authoritarian views, believing that a strong government and religious conformity were the best way of achieving a harmonious society. However, he found Stubbs' views to be interesting, and they may have planted the seeds of Locke's later philosophy on religious tolerance. That being said, if there was one thing preventing Locke from belief in religious tolerance, it was Catholics. In Locke's opinion, their allegiance to the Pope in Rome and several hundred-year domination of Europe made them politically dangerous. Despite his religious stance, Locke dreaded becoming a priest as his scholarship demanded. Locke tried to delay this as long as possible, as his love of learning far exceeded his desire to join the clergy. Oxford at the time was becoming an epicenter of medical research, with a rising star in the field, Robert Boyle, setting up a laboratory there. Locke, fascinated with medicine, wanted to stay at the university and continue to study it. And as Locke's intellectual focus changed, so did the leadership of England. Richard Cromwell had failed at inspiring the same respect as his father. In 1660, Charles II, son of Charles I, was restored to the throne. Locke welcomed the return of the king. In line with his authoritarian leanings at this time, he believed that there needed to be a strong ruler in place. Another death impacted Locke, now 28, when his father passed away from illness in February of 1661. Despite initially being hard on Locke in his childhood, the two men had grown to be friends and his death was keenly felt. After attending his father's funeral, he returned to Oxford where he would continue to climb the academic ranks, first as a lecturer in Greek. From 1661 to 1667, Locke was appointed by the dean to be a tutor to undergraduate students. Oxford was everything for Locke. It was his education, his income, his home, and where his friends lived. It allowed him time to learn and grow and build the repertoire of knowledge that would soon change the world. But perhaps at times it was too comfortable. Through the majority of his years, Locke failed to apply himself to the world and lend his mind in helping a rather tumultuous political landscape. John took his job as a tutor seriously and was very hands-on in guiding his students' well-being. His dedication didn't go unnoticed, and he was well-liked by the students he mentored. For his services, he received between 30 and 35 pounds a year. During these years, Locke was a supporter of the Act of Uniformity, which re-established the Church of England and made it the prime religious institution in the country. In 1663, Locke was elected as censor of moral philosophy, a disciplinary position which he held until the following year. This contributed another 10 pounds to his annual income. Things were fairly uneventful until 1665 when Locke, 33, lost his official college posting at Oxford. However, this turned out to be a good thing. It allowed him to dedicate the bulk of his time to studying medicine. Specifically, he performed various studies on blood and respiration. That same year saw the start of the Great Plague in London. King Charles II and many of London's citizens fled to Oxford, leaving it overcrowded and uncomfortable. In the midst of this plague, England found itself at war once more. For Locke, conflict was just a day at the office, but the right mixture of circumstances would change the course of his life and by extension, all of European history. 
Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to historical figures. In 1665, England went to war with Holland over trade. This became the Second Anglo-Dutch War. King Charles, needing every advantage, sent a diplomatic mission to the Elector of Brandenburg in Germany to ensure he remained neutral. At this time, the royal court was being held at Oxford to avoid the Great Plague spreading in London. There, a former Westminster School classmate introduced John Locke to Sir Walter Vane, who was heading up the mission to Germany. Vane, impressed with Locke, made him his secretary. This would be Locke's first journey outside of England, and he was very excited. Even though he had strong intellectual curiosities, he was disenchanted with academic life. After all, he had spent the past 10 years studying. Life outside of Oxford looked luxurious. He thought that perhaps traveling to Germany might offer a change of pace. When the diplomats arrived in Cleve, Germany, the elector of Brandenburg was quick to tell the delegation that he would happily join England in their war against Holland so long as they adequately paid him. This made things fairly simple. However, Germany wasn't quite what Locke expected. For the man who loved college, the big city proved to be a little intimidating. In Cleve, he felt isolated, and he wasn't getting any letters from his friends back home, possibly due to postal troubles. Although his isolation on the trip left him with a sour taste for foreign travel, it was important in changing his mind regarding religious intolerance. Cleve tolerated a variety of religious denominations, and while there, Locke visited services at various churches, This was a very dramatic change from England. Instead of the chaos and violence that he expected, he noticed that everyone in town seemed to get along peacefully. However, this peace would not be extended to the English. The English government rejected the elector of Brandenburg's offer, and the English contingent went home. The elector ended up sending troops to fight for Holland. Locke had also been out of his element in Cleve, being a novice to diplomacy. In his reports, he wrote apologetically about his abilities, a typical sentiment for Locke. But apparently, Sir Walter Vann didn't think Locke's diplomatic skills were as bad as he did. Locke was actually invited to accompany the English ambassador to Spain when he returned home in 1666. However, he turned the opportunity down. He didn't believe he'd do well, and he missed his bedrock of Oxford. Locke's humility was clearly unfounded, and it perhaps prevented him seizing key opportunities as a young intellectual. Locke was like that friend who stays in every night with some excuse. You try to get him to have fun, but he always has homework or claims to be busy. Then he stays home watching TV, fantasizing about a more exciting life. From this, we can see two sides of Locke, one that craved stability and another that longed for novelty. Oxford offered him stability in his uncertain times, but also boundless intellectual opportunities. We can safely say that John Locke was not a risk-taker. Locke returned to Oxford in 1666 and continued studying medicine and respiration. He was now 34 years old. In July of that year, Locke began practicing medicine. In those days, having a Master's of Arts was enough to act as a practicing physician. After obtaining his medical license in April, he began practicing with a man named David Thomas. Through this, in July 1666, he met the man who would most profoundly impact his life, Baron Anthony Ashley Cooper. It's really difficult to understate how important Ashley was to be in Locke's life. We may not have had John Locke's profound philosophical insights without him. Lord Ashley was a seasoned politician and a 17th century rock star, and 10 years older than Locke. Orphaned at eight, he had been a baronet at the age of 10, a member of parliament at 19, and, like Locke, had been educated at Oxford. He had initially fought with the royalists, defending King Charles during the Civil War, but switched sides. He had served in Cromwell's government, making his way into the executive government, Ashley would eventually oppose Cromwell and was actually one of the 12 members who went to Holland in 1660 to bring Charles II back to England from Holland. At 45, Ashley was Chancellor of the Exchequer, which meant he was head of the Treasury. 
He'd been suffering from excruciating side pain for the past 20 years and was seeing David Thomas for medical treatment. Ashley took an immediate liking to Locke and was especially impressed by his intellect. Locke immediately took to the charming and intelligent Ashley as well, and the two became friends very quickly. In fact, Ashley was able to use his influence to get the king to free Locke from his obligation to become a priest. This allowed him to continue studying medicine and science at Oxford without the pressure to join the clergy. He wouldn't stay there for too long, as in 1667, he accepted an invitation from Ashley to be his patron at Exeter House in London. This was the first time Locke had left Oxford in 15 years, so we can understand the effect Ashley must have had on the younger man. Being Ashley's patron would also give him the stability he wanted, the intellectual stimulation he craved, and the novelty of being in the world of one of England's most influential politicians. Locke lived with Ashley and had his living needs taken care of. In return, Locke advised Ashley on medical matters. Those early years at Exeter House would have a profound influence on Locke's thinking. He became acquainted with a doctor named Thomas Sydenham, who had rejected traditional medical thought that involved theorizing on the nature of disease. Instead, he advocated for observing how patients responded to treatment. This undoubtedly influenced Locke's notions of empiricism, the idea that knowledge is gained through sense and experience. That would be crucial in his later writings, but this wouldn't be his only intellectual evolution. In the aftermath of the Act of Uniformity of 1662, many religious nonconformists found themselves oppressed by the law. With his views on religious tolerance having evolved since his student days, Locke began writing what would eventually become a letter concerning toleration. In 1668, the health problems that had plagued Ashley for the past two decades got intolerably worse. He saw the king's own doctor, whose prescription was to purge, although it's not clear what this meant. It did, however, make Ashley's condition worse and caused a tumor to grow out of his chest. Locke drained the tumor and had a silver tube put in to ensure that it never overflowed with fluid. Ashley would have to wear that silver tube for the rest of his life. Now, you would think that after Locke had saved his life, Ashley would have pushed him to continue pursuing medicine. But this wasn't the case. Ashley, seeing Locke's intellectual potential, wanted Locke to become more involved in his personal affairs and to advise him on politics and economics. To that end, Ashley encouraged Locke to study up on the nation's civil and religious affairs. Part of his new role would be working for Ashley as a secretary for the proprietors of the Carolina colony in the Americas. Locke contributed to the drafting of the constitution of the colony and even created a system of coinage for it. This afforded Locke the opportunity to invest in various colonial enterprises. It should be mentioned that this included investment in the African slave trade. However, later in life, Locke would change his mind on the legitimacy of slavery and divest himself from slaving companies. In 1670, now 38, Locke developed health problems of his own. He suffered from a cough and shortness of breath, which could either have been asthma or chronic bronchitis. Whatever it was, this constant consumption, as he would call it, was certainly exacerbated by the air in overpopulated London. These problems would plague him for the rest of his life. However, he wouldn't let his health get in the way of his intellectual pursuits. Although religious tolerance wasn't something that Locke was focused on in 1671, it was an issue that was back in the public spotlight with the publishing of Samuel Parker's Discourse of Ecclesiastical Polity, which advocated for state regulation of religion. One day, Locke was in his personal rooms discussing the book with a small group of friends. After a while, the conversation reached an impasse. He realized that in order to adequately handle the controversy surrounding religious tolerance that the book brought up, they would need to approach the topic from an epistemological angle, that is in a way that distinguished justified belief from opinion. He began to write some rough notes on the topic and would continue to write on and off for over a decade and a half. These notes would eventually become the 700-page book that would make him famous, Essay Concerning Human Understanding. 
However, Locke would soon have little time for writing. In 1672, Ashley was made Lord Chancellor, the most powerful minister in the country. Locke was made Secretary of Presentations, which dramatically increased his workload. On top of this, Locke was made Secretary of the Council for Trade and Plantations. This didn't last long, though. Charles had given several appointments in order to appease political opponents. This included making Ashley the first Earl of Shaftesbury, a higher rank of nobility than his previous title of Baron. However, this didn't quite earn Ashley's cooperation. Charles was trying to return England to Catholicism, which Ashley openly opposed. This included opposing the presumed succession of James, Charles' Catholic brother. Ashley went too far in his opposition and lost his position as Lord Chancellor, which meant that Locke lost his job as Secretary of Presentations. The upside was Locke could finally take a much-needed break. In 1675, at the age of 43, Locke's health was failing. This was largely due to the incredible stress of working with Ashley, but the extended periods of time spent in London's polluted air didn't help either. In order to ease his stress and regain his health, Locke decided to take a trip to France in late 1675. Some friends suggested he visit Montpellier in the south of the country to take in the air and clear his lungs. He hadn't planned on it being a long trip, but eventually ended up spending three and a half years there. Perhaps after his years with Ashley, being thrust into unfamiliar and taxing situations on a regular basis, he finally felt comfortable being able to go out and explore the world on his own. Locke spent a significant portion of his trip in Montpellier, though he also frequently visited Paris. While in Montpellier in 1676, he met 20-year-old Thomas Herbert, the future Earl of Pembroke, who would become a lifelong friend. It should be noted that France was a very Catholic country in the 17th century and was not very tolerant of non-conforming religious denominations. But Locke noticed that attempts to repress Protestants had little effect on changing their religion to Catholicism. While in France, Locke also took this time to return to studying medicine, connecting with local doctors and medical schools. Before leaving for France, Locke had successfully petitioned Oxford to grant him a Bachelor of Medicine degree, as well as a medical scholarship that would allow him to stay on the faculty. This assured that Locke would always have a place at his beloved Oxford. Perhaps this was to get formal recognition of his years of medical study, but there's also the possibility that he wanted to keep his options open and not rely on Ashley's patronage. This was especially due to Ashley's recent scandal. Locke was playing it safe once again. He almost always played it safe. Throughout his life, Locke was easy to talk to and found himself able to get along with people from many different backgrounds. This, combined with his intellect, allowed him to make friends and connections easily. Though, by all accounts, Locke had a way with words and some cordial relationship with ladies he would never marry. In letters to friends sent while he was in France, he said that he believed that marriage and death, quote, are nearly the same thing. Spoken like a stubborn bachelor. We can only speculate as to why he never married. He may have been asexual, or he may have been deterred by the fact that marriage would have meant the end of his scholarship at Oxford, which was Locke's soulmate in its own right. Though there is also correspondence between him and a French intellectual that Locke met in Paris, Nicolas Toinard, that some believe suggests that he may have been gay. After a final tour around France and a failed attempt to reach Rome due to poor weather, Locke returned to England in April of 1679. Now 47, he was feeling refreshed. Locke reported to John Banks that his lungs are pretty well and will bear the sea coal smoke of London. However, the political strife that Locke needed refuge from had only grown more tense in his absence. England, it seemed, couldn't pick a religion. Not only had King Charles been trying to rule without Parliament, there was widespread paranoia of a popish plot from the Vatican to assassinate him in order for his Catholic brother James to take the throne and become authoritarian like France. Popish was another form of the word popery, which was a common but not very inventive way of referring to Roman Catholicism at the time. 
It would later turn out that no such plot existed, but thus was the nature of a monarch's paranoia. Around this time, it was discovered that King Charles had created a secret alliance with France to turn England Catholic. Ashley, a loud critic of Catholicism, used this to gain popularity with the mostly Protestant population. Unable to ignore or suppress Ashley, in 1679, Charles made him Lord President of a new Privy Council, a very powerful position. This was the tumultuous situation that greeted Locke when he returned to Ashley in London. A power-hungry king, a rebellious patron, and a country that just couldn't seem to figure out its identity. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, let's continue our story. By late 1680, a year after John Locke's return from his French vacation, King Charles II was working to get rid of Parliament. He, like many kings, wanted as much power as possible. He started taking money from Catholic France as a way to rid himself of the need for Parliament's funding. Power-hungry Charles dissolved Parliament and removed Ashley from his position of Lord President for continuing to oppose him. Tyrannical as he might be, he was also a little wishy-washy. Charles reconvened Parliament in March of 1681 at Oxford, which he believed to be a more politically advantageous location than hostile London should he dissolve Parliament again. Although Charles's flip-flopping on Parliament might seem like the work of an unstable king, it was actually a political calculation in order to prevent a vote on an exclusion bill while also preventing a revolt. All this would have certainly concerned Locke, who by now was far from the authoritarian he was in his undergraduate days. It was during this time that he began working on his seminal political work, Two Treatises of Government, that rejected rule without the consent of the governed. It's the famous piece you may have learned about in high school or college. Between his evolved political beliefs and anti-Catholic sentiment, Locke's support of Ashley wouldn't have merely been out of duty to a friend, but one of an ideological ally who believed in his cause. In spite of his lifelong caution, he was now getting his hands dirty. Though Locke was so good at covering his tracks, we will never know exactly what influence he had. If Locke was alive today, he would surely be a proponent of the dark internet for all his web browsing needs. In Oxford, Charles dissolved Parliament for what would be the last time during his reign. He had proposed that limits be placed on the power of a Catholic monarch, but the House of Commons was insistent on exclusion for James. This was just a thin excuse for wanting to return sole political power to the monarchy. Charles exerted this power in July 1681 by having Ashley arrested and thrown into the Tower of London. Charles accused him of high treason for supposedly having borne false witness in connection with the so-called Popish Plot. Which he probably did just so that he could say Popish Plot more often. (laughs) In captivity, Ashley's health quickly deteriorated, and Locke immediately began working on assembling a legal defense on his behalf. Locke did copious amounts of research into the case against him and saw to it that lawyers were hired and paid. Conveniently, Ashley's fame did much of the work for him. The grand jury of commoners didn't indict him, and he was released. Without Parliament, Ashley's back was against the political wall, and he began to contemplate an armed rebellion against the monarchy. It seems unlikely that Locke wasn't aware of what was going on, given how close he was to Ashley. As was typical of Locke, he never wrote down his exact thoughts on the political climate out of an abundance of caution. In any case, Locke's association with Ashley did have a negative effect on his reputation, especially back at Loyalist Oxford, where there were rumblings against him. If he were expelled, he would lose his safety net and be completely dependent on Ashley. But Ashley was having troubles of his own. Realizing that he wouldn't be able to survive a second indictment, Ashley fled to Protestant Holland in late 1682, Holland at that time was a refuge for many anti-monarchy dissenters. Locke didn't go with Ashley. He was traveling around Oxford at the time, possibly to distance himself from Ashley's plotting. Three months after Ashley fled, Locke learned that he had died in Holland. Locke didn't write down any of his feelings on the matter, only that he had learned of his death. 
As we've discussed previously, Locke was not known to write his thoughts on political matters, either out of modesty or caution. In this case, he may have been wary of his writing being discovered. This could have put his life in danger because of his association with Ashley. It must have been difficult to not be able to openly mourn the loss of a close friend. Agreed. And any feeling of safety he might have had would not last long. Following the Rye House plot, a failed assassination attempt on Charles and James in early 1683, Charles began to come down hard on his enemies. This included former associates of Ashley, several of whom he had arrested and executed. Not wanting to take any chances, Locke got his affairs in order and fled to Holland. He made his way to Amsterdam, where he integrated himself with the local English refugee and intellectual communities. In Holland, Locke continued to work on his pieces on human understanding and religious tolerance. Amsterdam, a city that tolerated religious minorities, surely reinforced Locke's views on tolerance. He also continued to work on two treatises of government. Locke's fears about being targeted seemed to be validated when he learned that, by the king's order, he had been expelled from Oxford. This must have been devastating, since Oxford had been a part of his life for so long, and he had seen his long-term future there. It was like losing a lover and companion who had been with him for over 30 years. In letters to Lord Pembroke, Locke vehemently denied any involvement in Ashley's political affairs and tried to distance himself from the English political refugees in Holland. As was typical with Locke, this was likely done out of an abundance of caution. Back in England, the political turmoil was far from over. In February 1685, Charles died and James took the throne. The fear that the monarchy would become Catholic had been realized. In response, Charles' illegitimate brother, the Earl of Monmouth, planned an invasion of England with several English exiles in Utrecht. Locke wasn't directly involved in the Monmouth Rebellion, but there are some who believed that he helped raise money for it, or even advised the rebels. The timing of Locke's trip to Utrecht in 1685 is definitely suspicious. The invasion took place in June 1685 and was ultimately unsuccessful. The Earl of Monmouth was captured that July and executed. This complicated Locke's life in Holland. An English envoy was sent to Holland with a list of dissenters that James demanded be extradited back to England. Locke was on this list, and so he went into hiding in Amsterdam, a city that was less likely to cooperate with England than other municipalities. Despite living on the run, including a brief stint in Cleve, Locke was putting the finishing touches on his philosophical works. Back in England, the instability that had driven Locke out went from bad to worse. In 1688, King James had a child, which meant that the monarchy would continue to be Catholic for another generation. Not only that, James put Catholics in positions of power in government. This prompted several high-ranking English politicians to petition Prince William of Orange in the Netherlands, a Protestant married to Charles' daughter Mary, to invade England and take over the monarchy. Spoiler alert, these were the William and Mary that the college in Virginia was named after. William and his army landed in England in November of 1688 and by December had taken over London. James fled to Catholic France. William and Mary became co-monarchs, and Locke was invited to return to England by Lord Charles Mordaunt, who had participated in the invasion. This was most likely due to the relationship Locke had with Lord Mordaunt's wife, Carrie, whom he met at Princess Mary's court in Rotterdam. Despite never marrying, Locke got along very well with women. His and Carrie's letters have even been described as flirtatious. They were close enough to return to England together in early 1689. This wouldn't be a particularly happy return for Locke. He was now 57 and was still marked by his long association with Ashley, seemingly having no identity of his own. Being further along in his life, he was probably beginning to consider his legacy. His life had been put through turmoil and, according to him, confounded the quiet I always sought. Not only that, the loss of his scholarship at Oxford meant that he no longer had his independence. He relied on his measly rental income and an annuity. He also hadn't made a name for himself in any sort of field. 
However, he still had his lifelong love of pursuing knowledge, the steady driving force that was a constant in his often turbulent life. He also had the manuscripts of three of the most influential philosophy books ever written. With these and the connections to his powerful friends, his life was about to change radically. Shortly after returning to England, Lord Mordaunt helped Locke secure a job as Commissioner of Appeals for Excise, a fairly prestigious position that he would hold for the rest of his life. He was even offered an ambassadorship, but he turned it down, still believing he lacked the right temperament for diplomacy. The king also restored Locke's scholarship at Oxford, but he turned it down when he realized that he would be taking the spot from the current holder of the scholarship. How far he had come, rejecting the thing he loved the most. Perhaps he did so to invest in the younger generation, a truly noble sacrifice. In May of 1689, Locke found a publisher, and within the next year or so, his three major works were released. A Letter Concerning Toleration, Two Treatises of Government, and Essay on Human Understanding. We could do several podcasts on each work individually, so we'll just quickly go over the major arguments and their impact. A letter concerning toleration made the case for the separation of church and state, arguing that it was the best way to avoid religious persecution. A Latin version of the letter had been published in Holland just prior to Locke's return to England. Two treatises of government argued that government required the consent of the governed, and that should it get wildly out of line, the people had the right to engage in armed rebellion. Locke was wary of being associated with these two works, and although he had received input from friends before publishing, he did so anonymously. Despite a change in regime, his natural inclination to avoid conflict was still present. He would, however, put his name on his magnum opus, the 700-page work that would usher in the Enlightenment, Essay on Human Understanding. More people today might be more familiar with his political work. However, it was the essay that made Locke famous in his own time. Again, we could spend many hours discussing this book, but for this podcast, we'll just go over the salient points. Locke argued that ideas came from both sensory information and reflection. He placed ideas squarely at the center of his philosophy, and this is what made it so revolutionary. Essentially, we perceive the world through ideas. If we perceive an object in the world, we do not actually perceive the object itself, but rather the image of it in our mind. The intermediary step is the idea. This proposition is what a lot of critics took exception to when this was published. Even today, there are those that challenge this idea. He also argued that our knowledge has limits, and we might not be able to fully comprehend some topics. We can strive to learn parts of them. Locke also explored the limits of language and how this can be a cause of misunderstanding and how the limitation of language ties in with the limitation of ideas. He also discussed how reason was the faculty we used to connect ideas into knowledge and belief. These were disruptive ideas at the time, and his book took the Western world by storm. Copies of it even made their way into the Oxford Library and would be recommended by many tutors at the university. Locke spent the remaining years of his life updating his works, publishing several editions before his death. He also made a point of responding to his critics, lamenting the idea that he had not been properly understood. However, Locke wasn't done with writing new works. In 1695, he anonymously published The Reasonableness of Christianity. Again, Locke seemed to want to personally distance himself from any works he published relating to politics or religion that might be controversial. Although there were those that suspected that he was the author based off the ideas and style presented in them. Locke had been a firm Christian his entire life and would often engage in theological debates. In another attempt to ease tensions between the various denominations, he argued that they all shared a fundamental theology, believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that this alone was necessary to be a Christian. However, there was some backlash to this idea since some claimed that it rejected the importance of the Trinity, something Locke would deny in rebuttals. 
Locke also continued to work in government and was appointed to the Council of Trade by the king in 1696. However, his health would only continue to get worse. Whenever his lungs were causing him trouble, he would leave London for the countryside to recover. There, he enjoyed horseback riding and experimenting with filtering water. He eventually retired from government in 1700 at the age of 67. He was no longer able to remain in London and perform his duties. Even with his health failing, Locke still kept working on further editions of his books. But when things didn't improve in the summer of 1704, he pretty much knew that the end was near. John Locke died at home with friends on October 28, 1704, at age 72. He was buried three days later in a modest wood coffin, per his instructions, and the money that would have been spent on cloth for it was given to local laborers for new clothes. It would be impossible to fully describe Locke's philosophical legacy here. Some scholars have called him the most influential philosopher of modern times. He changed the philosophical field of epistemology from one that concerned itself with complex metaphysical theories to one that used sense and experience to find knowledge through ideas. Locke mainly applied these theories to morality and religion, but later epistemologists would apply them to other fields. He also changed the conversation around epistemology from whether something was merely true or false to one that explored to what degree we can actually know anything. In terms of theology, Locke was able to find both a philosophical and religious foundation for religious tolerance, an idea that a war-weary Europe was eager to hear. This and his political ideas surrounding the separation of church and state are foundational ideas in modern democracies. Locke bridged the rhetorical and speculative world of the medieval times and ushered in the empiricism of the Enlightenment. He's also credited with starting the Age of Revolutions in the 18th century. His inspiring ideas about rebellion and the consent of the government were a factor in many revolutions, including those in America and France. From humble beginnings to the halls of power, Locke dedicated his life to knowledge, thought, and peace in one of England's most turbulent times. He never set out to change the world, and in his modesty, he would never have thought it possible. But in our own uncertain times, we should perhaps relearn one of Locke's greatest lessons, tolerance. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every other Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Nicholas Rochalt and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.